Distant Dog Barking, Episode 10, written by D.D. McWolf. Sam lay prone among a jumble of moss-covered forest floor litter, with his rifle pointed toward two men sitting on a fallen tree fifty yards down the hill below, alongside Red Fox's private trail that descended the slope to the town of Index. The two armed men were talking quietly between themselves, stopping occasionally to look back up the trail and off into the trees to the left and the right, clearly wary of being pounced on by someone or something lurking in the forest. Coming down the trail just before dawn, Sam had luckily seen them before they spotted him and he was able to duck in out of sight to observe unnoticed. He was still wearing his digis, now grubby and smelling of smoke, and had crisscrossed his face with charcoal from the fire to further camouflage his form. Sam, Cayley with the baby, and Red Fox had slept poorly under an overhang alongside a red oxided food storage locker stashed with Red Fox's provisions, so they hadn't gone hungry. Red Fox had managed to rescue a blanket from his porch while the rest of the house roared in flames, and Cayley had used this to swaddle herself and the newborn atop a thick bed of pine needles, the men heaped in from the forest floor. Overnight, Sam and Red Fox had discussed their options as Cayley slept, waking occasionally to breastfeed and check she was still under the men's watchful eye. Before dawn, Sam had geared up and headed down the mountain trail to get eyes on Index and hopefully determine what was going on down there. Had it been invaded too? Were the original town occupants still in situ, or was it now under hostile takeover? They needed to know in order to make a decision on where to go. If it was just Red Fox's homestead that had been attacked and the combatants had been entirely suppressed, then it may be safe to haul up down the hill in the town. But if last night's men were simply part of a more organized push into the valley and the town had fallen also, then it wouldn't be safe to do anything but find refuge deeper into the forest. But Sam was frankly anxious about that. How would he care for an old man and a young mother with no shelter and just the clothes on their backs? And honestly, how could he carry enough of the canned food in Red Fox's stash to keep them fed for more than a few days? Forest living was tough on the strong, never mind the vulnerable and elderly, so he wanted nothing more than for the village to be untouched, for the inhabitants to be milling about happily and clubbing together to plant gardens and bake cakes and otherwise rally during the crisis. So he was utterly crestfallen to see these two men on the trail now, camoed up and armed and clearly not part of the town's genteel population. They were obviously on watch duty, soldiers from some shadowy civilian militia that had been laying in wait for a dissolution of civil order. And this was only one vantage point in this basin of mountain peaks. There was bound to be dozens of such men keeping guard over God knows how many others occupying the town. Sam didn't know what to do here now, but wait. If he moved, they'd be sure to hear him accidentally snap a stick or turn to see him skulking off. And though his rifle was suppressed, he wasn't certain he could kill both before one ducked down behind the log and returned fire. So he decided to wait until a window presented itself. Keeping his muzzle in their direction, he watched for that opportune moment. Finally, after what seemed like an age, one man stood, leant his rifle against the fallen trunk and walked straight back up the trail towards Sam. 
He stepped sideways against the far side of the brush pile where Sam hid and unzipped his pants to piss. The man stared over Sam's head into the forest above, watching for signs of threat coming down the hill, and as he pulled out his dick, Sam raised up from behind the stick pile and aimed the muzzle of his rifle straight at the man's crotch. The two men looked at each other and froze, each speechless but each fully understanding the severity of the situation. Sam had him dead to rights, and he raised a finger to his lips and gestured silently for the man to shush. Through the man's leg, Sam had clear sight of the second gunman sitting on the log down the hill, and by lowering his muzzle slightly, he was able to align his crosshairs on the back of the man's head. Sam squeezed the trigger. The pop of the suppressed round caused the man with his cock out to yelp in alarm, but still he stood there, staring down at Sam with unadulterated terror. Sam watched the man on the log slump forward, neutralized, and could see in the cockman's eyes that he too had heard his partner's body fall. Sam raised his rifle up to the man's chest. Put your dick away, asshole. The man complied. Sit down. Sam guided the man with his muzzle as he stepped in around the brush pile and sat down against a mossy log. Sam pulled a 14-inch zip-tie from his pack and gestured for the man to strap his wrist to a branch protruding from the trunk, which he did. Then, in a hushed voice, How many of you down there? A lot, the man replied defiantly. I know that. Give me an exact number. About 20, the man shared, a little too eagerly. You sure about that? Sam queried. The man nodded, but Sam knew this was undoubtedly a gross understatement intended to lure him into the mistake of launching a raid down there. Did you take the town? Sam asked. Yep. And the residents? They all left. None killed. Uh, I guess some. Another lie. Sam could see by his eyes that this man had been part of a massacre. Fucker. You from up there? The man asked, gesturing up the hill with his chin. Sam said nothing. They say there's monsters up there, the man said after a pause, looking for Sam to confirm. Who said? Sam asked. Some of our guys that came down the hill last night. We all heard the noises. Sounded like an earthquake. Then there was a fire, right? Sam just stared at him, neither inclined nor actually knowing how to answer him. Are you with them? The man asked, clearly curious to know where Sam fit in in all of this. All you need to know is we're coming for you, and not one of you will be spared, Sam stated, then stood and discreetly stretched out his back. Bring it on, the man fired back, still defiant but clearly anxious. Sam saw the fear and wondered if perhaps the man was preparing to be shot like his buddy, but then realized the fear was older and deeper, inherited from those who had evaded the crushing last night. Whatever the old engine had conjured up was apparently the stuff of nightmares, and this man's face was steeped in them, contorted by the tales, agog with burning curiosity at the stories carried down the mountains by last night's escapees. Sam had seen nothing but the aftermath, and when he asked Red Fox who his strongman allies were, Red Fox simply said, Patience, son. Sam raised his rifle to the man's forehead and held it there for a second. The guy was young, probably no more than nineteen, no doubt recruited by disgruntled parents or zealots in a prepper community. Not his fault. When he saw a wet stain growing across the front of the man's cargo pants, Sam felt a twinge of clemency. This was a shit show. The whole meltdown was a tragedy and a snafu, and this poor guy was one of thousands nationwide, probably, 
who'd undoubtedly be swept up now into bands of homegrown revolutionaries out to stake a claim in what they felt was rightfully theirs. Freedom, the Second Amendment, emancipation from taxes, the dethroning of the 10% hoarding all the wealth, and the restoration of an America that no one even remembered anymore, the land of the brave and the free and those with the American dream, now long ago dissolved in whole-scale greed and stupidity. This armed uprising may see to reclaim the ideals of yesteryear, but they were sadly delusional if they thought it would take anything less than a generation to actually accomplish. Maybe two. And most of these men would die in the struggle, squashed by a military might infinitely better equipped than them. And if that was overcome, then they'd only be killed in the eternal, internal power struggles that plague jury-rigged endeavors as each warlord vies for dominance. History is littered with the corpses of under-equipped revolutionaries, and for those that succeed, few ever survive long enough to reap the rewards of their effort. That was just the way the world was. Sam lowered his rifle, turned, clambered back through the stick pile that he'd been hiding in, and headed up the trail, leaving the man shackled to a branch and marinating in his own urine. He didn't need to kill him. In fact, it was better if he didn't. The kid would wrestle himself free and run back down to the town with stories of a gunman and the revitalized rumors of monsters, and hopefully that'd keep the horde from venturing back up to Red Fox's side of the mountain. Kaylee sat under the granite overhang, cross-legged on her bed of pine needles, spoon-feeding herself a can of black bean soup whilst the baby suckled at her left breast. She rocked back and forth, slightly humming to the little one as it fed, eyes closed in newborn bliss. She was still in the daze and wicked sore and simultaneously ecstatic and grieving Ryan's absence. She knew how excited he'd be to be a father and how in love they'd be right now and protective. He'd know what to do to make them safe, but instead she was a third wheel on what felt like a handcart to hell. Where the fuck were they going to go now? The cabin was destroyed. How would she keep her baby alive and healthy in the forest? And where would they shelter from the rain? Where would they go to get away from this prepper militia who may have taken over the area? It seemed so hopeless, and yet the joy of her baby was a sanity safety line holding her back from the brink of complete despair. Tears rolled continuously down her cheeks as she gazed at Hannah, suckling obliviously as though all was right with the world. Red Fox listened from outside the overhang. He could hear Kaylee sobbing quietly to herself and knew she was both under a cold black cloud of fear and in the warm, bright maternal sun all at once. The sweet joy of motherhood and the bitter grief of loss and uncertainty was a misery like no other, rending the soul in two. But Red Fox knew, too, of the great metaphysical power that came from that rare emotional place. Because it was akin to that experienced by the newly deceased, it harbored extraordinary power. Being suspended between the abysmal and the ecstasy right after death, souls could still dramatically impact the physical world and, in that ether state, communicate with living loved ones by manifesting their presence. It was common for lights to blink or objects to move or vibrations to be felt immediately after the departing of a soul, and right now Kaylee unwittingly harbored this capacity within. And it might not last long. 
Sam returning with good or bad news would kick her resolutely into a state of hope or despair, and her strength would evaporate accordingly. He needed to direct her energy now, discreetly, so as not to diffuse it, and carefully, so as not to terrify her, but if he could draw in the correct forest deity, the correct guide for this precise moment, their safe passage and destination would be assured. Kaylee, Red Fox said softly, what animal comes to mind when you look upon your daughter? Kaylee was silent for a few moments. A raven, she replied matter-of-factly. A warm surge rushed through Red Fox's blood. That was correct. He'd seen that too when he first looked at the child, this child born in the heart of battle. He'd glimpsed the image of a raven. To him it was the king of birds, and smarter than any other mountain creature, it was the best of guides. He rose slowly from his granite rock, and picking up a dried oak leaf from the ground litter, he walked slowly to Kaylee and squatted beside her. He sensed her energy was beginning to wane, and so he quickly held out the leaf, cupping it in the palm of his hand. Spit into this, he said, and he was happy that she did so without question or hesitation, because with each passing second her saliva would be less bittersweet. Then he stood, exited the overhang, and walked a ways off to stand in a shaft of morning light that broke through the canopy above. There he placed the leaf on a boulder, and Kaylee looked over at him. What the heck was the old man doing, she wondered, annoyed yet curious as she watched Red Fox remove a cigarette lighter and ignite the leaf. Then, standing erect, he extended his arms and looked up as a thin plume of smoke rose up from the boulder, up past his raised chin and into the trees above. She was impressed how straight the smoke rose, like a plumb line, and she watched, fascinated, as it ascended up and up in the breezeless cathedral of trunks and curled around the upper boughs of the wizened pines. Then she was even more intrigued to hear the throaty croaking of a distant raven, and she was enjoying this composition of coincidences for a few sceptical seconds. But then the raven got closer and closer, and instead of passing by to continue flying down the cliff face, it alighted in the tree directly above Red Fox and croaked twice as if to announce its arrival, or possibly acknowledge that it had been summoned. Kaylee had heard the legends of shamanistic power, but had always imagined them to be apocryphal. Stories designed to romanticize a decimated people and imbue them with otherworldly powers. But this was going on right before her eyes. Ravens were smart, wary birds that rightfully avoided human beings, not flew directly to them. But clear as day, Red Fox had just summoned this one, and here it was in all its regal iridescence, shimmering blue-black in the morning sun. A huge old male raven with a thick mane and anvil beak, boasting a fully feathered seer, worn like a major's mustache. Clearly this was an elder among its conspiracy of kin. Kaylee swallowed hard, awestruck. When the bird croaked a third time, Hannah's eyes popped open and she pulled away from the nipple as if to listen. Red Fox then began chanting, softly and though the leaf was no longer burning, he pushed his palms upward as though wafting his prayer aloft. The raven looked down and cocked its head from left to right, apparently listening to Red Fox. When the old Indian ceased his incantation, 
The raven roused contentedly, releasing a secondary feather from one of its wings, which floated down to land beside the boulder. Red Fox stooped and picked it up. Looking up at the raven, he gestured his gratitude, and turning, he walked back to Kaylee. He has agreed to guide us, Red Fox said, handing her the feather. Keep this safe. Kaylee took it. She was blown away. And looking past Red Fox, she checked the raven was still up there at the top of the tree, and not simply a figment of her imagination. The sounds of footsteps caused Red Fox to turn, exit the overhang, and walk to meet Sam, who suddenly appeared through the laurel undergrowth. The two men stood twenty yards off and spoke quietly together, and Kaylee could see immediately from their body language that it would not be safe to stay here. Ten minutes previously, that would have bottomed her out in a pool of despair, but thanks to Red Fox's Dr. Doolittle moment, heading off into the thicket suddenly seemed potentially positive. How was it possible that Red Fox could conjure a wild bird? What strange new world was this? Or was this the world of the ancients, lost to sight from those stuck in the rat race, but still quietly tenacious and inherently interwoven with original tribal cultures? Nature was always here, always present, always dogged and indomitable, and Red Fox clearly dwelled magically within that realm. Hey, Kaylee, you sleep well? Sam asked, approaching. Yeah, I, I think so. A little sore still. Sam smiled sympathetically and crouched beside her. We have to get going, huh? She asked. Afraid so. The town's been overrun. How many? She asked. Too many for us to deal with, he told her, shaking his head. You think they'll come after us? Not immediately. They'll be too scared, you know, after last night, but... Eventually, they'll brave up and try and take this area again. They need it, tactically, so they're not going to quit. Do you know what that was last night? What did all that damage? She asked anxiously, almost afraid to know. Uh, I think the militia torched his cabin. I know that, Sam, but all the trees and rocks, I mean, those don't just fall off a mountain all at once by themselves. What did that? Red Fox now stood alongside, and Sam looked up at him quizzically. Red Fox, he asked, knowing the old shaman could answer Kaylee's question. We'd love to know. Red Fox looked down at them both. Be careful what you wish for, he replied with a crooked smile. In time, you will see. But right now we should gather up some of these food cans and get the hell out of Dodge. The old raven dropped from its perch and, keeping beneath the tree canopy, flew a football field's length before alighting on another bough. It pinpointed its position with two short croaks. Then Red Fox led the way up through the trees toward it to the northeast, and Sam took up the rear with Kaylee and the baby sandwiched safely in between. They each carried what they could fit in their bags by way of canned food, Though not much, it'd give them a few days of sustenance and Sam could always make a solo return trip if necessary. They'd reburied the footlocker under all the rock and timber they could find, being careful to keep the disguise as natural as possible in the hopes that it would evade the prying eyes of scavenging fucktards. It'd likely be too risky to come back here any time soon. However, just knowing there was food stashed somewhere gave the disheveled group some peace of mind. They all knew it'd be a challenge finding secure shelter, 
especially as they were headed deep into a state park where there were no structures, but Red Fox said he knew of a shallow cave among some rocks alongside a small lake about two days' hike from here. But for now, they'd follow the raven, as it was clearly Hannah's spirit guide, and too, out of respect for the old bird and in honor of the alchemy conjured via Red Fox's supplication. The bird had been beseeched to lead them to safety, and it must be trusted to do just that, Red Fox explained as they walked single file through the Douglas firs. Then he went on to explain the raven was a sly beast, and if asked by an arrogant person, it would intentionally lead them astray, or to their own demise. But he said because the originator was a baby, and thus the epitome of pure intention, then the raven was obliged to be honorable. And as they trudged in the coolness of the trees, they were guided through thick brambles onto a wide trail, which Red Fox immediately recognized as a Cho Anito road, and he was suddenly alert. It was okay to walk this trail because they were guided, and their intent was pure, but he'd need to stay eagle-eyed all the same. And not wishing Kaylee and Sam to sense his anxiety, he rambled on with stories of raven craftiness and the misfortunes of conceited men. 7.6 miles northwest, as the bird flies, Wes was frying up a nine-inch trout he'd pulled from his diminutive lake. While it sizzled in his nine-inch skillet, he recalled reading that a fish's growth was determined by the size of the pool it inhabited, and how perfect it was that all the trout in his pond seemed custom-grown for the one frying-pan he'd chosen to bring along. He sipped from a cup of black instant coffee, made with water boiled in a billy can before the fish fry, and gazed off through the trees toward the peak of Mount Stickney. He'd thought of nothing else these past forty-eight hours of nothing other than a skinny girl and an ogreish, trollish beast living up there, somewhere on that mountain. A gruesome twosome without equal or rival or worry in the world. They didn't have to fear making fire to warm their food. They didn't have to worry about every twig snap in the woods. They didn't have to concern themselves with sleeping in an underground bunker for safety. That pair owned this mountain, he thought, enviously, as he crouched beside a small brook, and when the fish curled in the skillet, he forked it onto an aluminum plate and promptly lowered the rocket stove and pan into the pool at his side to extinguish the flames and odors and dispel all signs of his presence. he decided cooking was worth the risk about five days ago now. Besides, it took all of ten minutes to fry a fresh trout, and the exposure was minimal. A rocket stove meant he could muster full heat with just a few twigs and then lower the whole thing, pan and all, into a pool in the brook out of sight. A long wire pegged to the bank allowed him to retrieve it whenever he needed. It was a good setup, and by keeping this so-called kitchen a thousand feet up the slope from his bunker, it wouldn't draw attention to his home if in case his smoke and food aromas were detected by a passing malfeasant. Anyone who was a danger was a fucktard to West, though somehow Beauty and the Beast dodged that moniker. She was enthralling, but he was the devil. What a combo. Wes hoped and prayed that she'd honor his request to be considered a friendly because death by that beast would be an unthinkable horror. Not all his days of deployment combined had instilled the trepidation he felt that evening at the hollow. 
or at the camp finding three decapitated men skewered to trees, nor witnessing through his scope the power and violence of something that actually shouldn't exist, for fuck's sake. There's no such thing as monsters. Those are the myths of childhood, told to keep you in your bed at night while your parents make whoopee pie. There was no Santa, no Easter Bunny, no Tooth Fairies, or bogeymen, so Jesus, if bogeymen were real. Wes laughed to himself. He just couldn't stretch his blue collar head around it, and yet he was obsessed now. He wanted more. He wanted to see it do more of that demolition shit, to smell its odor, to hear it breathe air, to touch it, to look it in the eye and challenge it to actually exist. Was it paranormal, perhaps? It seemed utterly unfazed by possibly twenty rounds of five five six, and not a flinch before it exacted its bloody reprisals. I mean, what kind of strength was required to tear a man in half with your hands? The strength of ten men? More? Chimpanzees at half the weight of a man have twice the strength, but this thing at six times the mass, twelve hundred pounds of body weight? What was that? Twenty? Twenty-five times the strength of a man? Is that even feasible? To him it certainly had looked like it. Wes glanced quickly around to check his 360 before proceeding to pick the trout flesh off the bones with a fork and eat. It was delicious. The stuff of Lux restaurants and here, out here, it was just his everyday diet. He'd have to fish occasionally from that other nearby lake so as not to deplete the stocks here on his, and he wished he knew the formula for determining how many fish could live in any given body of water. Then a sound. Wes. A voice. Someone calling. Yes. A woman's voice calling. Yes. There, again, faint somewhere off in the trees, but it froze him. Then, quietly finishing up the rest of the trout, he dumped the bones in the brook, wiped off the plate on some moss, and packed it away in his bag, being careful to not make a sound or leave a trace. Shouldering his bag, he lifted his forty-five seventy from its roost between two tree branches, then moved slowly and quietly toward the sound, pausing to watch from every third tree. Wes. 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 You hear? Though he didn't recognize her shouting voice, Wes knew it could only be Joe, because he'd never told anyone other than his mother that he'd even built this place. And he picked up the pace and proceeded to approach, but without calling back. He still feared the beast and wanted to get eyes on her to see if she was alone before signifying his presence and location. Simultaneously scared and excited, Wes made his way closer, keeping trees between himself and the approaching voice, and as he descended toward the hollow and his private pond, he could see her step from the trees on the far side and approach the opposite bank. She seemed to be alone. Wes now lowered his rifle from low ready and slung it over his shoulder as he descended the last thirty yards through the trees on his side of the pond, less careful now, crackling twigs beneath his feet, and as he stepped from the trees he saw she now stood on the granite slabs of the far bank, and he raised his hand. Hey, Joe! But before she could respond, a rock the size of a basketball arced out over the treetops and landed in the pond a few feet in front of him, sending up a plume of water to soak him. He stood with arms out, drenched and in shock, and Joe just smiled back at him across the pond. 
I think it's his idea of social distancing, she said loudly to carry the 25 yards across the water. West smiled back as he scanned the tree line for sight of her guardian. Where is he? he asked nervously, hurling a 30-pound chunk of granite any distance was an impossible feat for any normal human being. Is he coming out? I don't think so, Joe said. He's bashful. West laughed aloud at Joe's use of that word in this context and in reference to something so totally demonic. Ah, he's being coy, huh? West countered back. So, you know what he is? Not exactly, she said, candidly. He was impressed she didn't lie or make something up. He saved me from the wreckage, I know that, and took me to the cave. No shit. And fed me. Must be love, Wes quipped. Joe smiled, and Wes thought she looked relaxed, which he was glad of, as he could feel the beast's eyes upon him from off within the cover of the trees, scrutinizing him, assessing his every move and facial gesture, perpetually gauging any threat to Joe. It felt as if the slightest risk to Joe's safety would unleash the fullest quota of retaliation, and there'd be no half-measures, no stopping it. He'd just be torn limb from limb and left for buzzard pickings, and Joe and the beast would walk off like it was just another day. Wes had always felt like the alpha male in any room, even in theaters. He was one of those men who was exceptionally cool under fire and clear-headed when things went pear-shaped, but somehow that was no preparation for this. Here, standing here, under the watchful gaze of that thing, put him at the bottom of the pecking order, and this was not Wes's comfort zone. I'm so happy to meet you. Joe exclaimed, almost intuiting his unease. You're not a rapist, are you? Jesus, what a question, West replied, playfully being extra careful to keep it light. Sorry, it's just, well... Joe paused, considering whether or not to tell him and get it out in the open from the offset, or was it just too much too soon? It's just, you know, these are scary fucking times. You're telling me... I think he'll get used to you. I'll come down often and visit, and he'll get used to you. Oh, great. And what if he doesn't? Wes couldn't help thinking, not sure if he could undergo the stress of regular visits. He remembered in his teens dating a girl whose dad was a notoriously badass cop, famed for beating perps to a bloody pulp with his fists if they pulled a weapon. And Wes had ultimately been too intimidated to get hot and heavy with his daughter and had made feeble excuses to fizzle out the romance before it properly started. He'd maybe have to do the same here. As cool as Joe seemed to be, it probably wasn't worth the risk. Does he have a name? Wes asked, hoping there was some human DNA there. I don't know. We don't speak. I thought he was a big homeless guy when I first saw him. A giant bum? Yeah, hey, she added, chuckling. That'd actually be a good nickname for him. He kind of smells like one. They both laughed a little, cautiously. So do I, Wes added, taking an audible draft of his armpit, which made Joe chuckle and more confidently. It was hard to know the boundaries when your life literally hung in the balance. So where do you come from, Wes asked, or where were you coming from? New York, Joe replied. What did you do? I'm a programmer. Oh, yeah, was, I guess, she added. And you? Retired. I'm a veteran. Oh, I guess I should have guessed that. 
she said, gesturing to his clothing. Did you serve a long time? Yeah, I was career army. Where do you stay here? Do you have a tent? She asked. West was reluctant to divulge that information. Yeah, sort of. I, I have a little shelter hidden up there, he replied, gesturing with his chin toward the wrong direction. And when Joe looked, thinking she might see sign of it, West promptly distracted her with a change of topic. So you know the country's fallen apart, right? Yeah, it was all starting when I left New York. I think we crashed because of the problems here, on the ground. Oh, for sure. The plane ran out of gas, West said. Yeah. How'd you know that? Joe asked excitedly. Well, I, w I watched it go down. It was silent. There, w there were no engines. Jesus Christ, I knew that. I was right. Fuck. West looked about nervously, hoping the bomb wouldn't misconstrue Joe's excitement. We were in a holding pattern for so long, then the engines failed, and I just knew that's what had happened, Joe explained. Yeah, there must have been security issues at multiple airports, you know, so planes couldn't be diverted. There'll have been more than one that came down, probably. Christ, did you hear anything about it? Do you have a radio? Joe asked. No, I wish, West said, again lamenting his failure to bring one. It's bad, that's for sure. I believe it. We didn't even properly recover from that COVID-19 bullshit. Now all this happens, Joe said. Yeah, honestly, it was that that set the stage, though, Joe. Folks have been pissed and broke for eight years now. This was inevitable outcome, I think. Can it fix itself, do you think? Joe asked. Nah, we're done, West said resolutely. They paused, contemplating the enormity of these fucked-up facts and this now drastically different American reality. So, do you know anything about those guys, those guys up by the wreckage? Joe resumed. No, but they were all Asian. How do you know? I checked after you left, Wes explained. What do you think that was all about? Not sure yet. I salvaged some items they left in a backpack and brought them home to my shelter. What were they? Small boxes. Of what? She asked. Didn't open them. They were hidden inside other things from a suitcase. Really? Yeah, like, you know, those little mini pelican cases. Yeah, yeah, you didn't open any of them? No, I don't want to know. There's a silicon gasket type stuff sealing the lids. Oh, that's scary. Must be something hardcore with all that gear they were wearing. Yeah, scary to think about, Wes said. But whatever's in those boxes, it's out of harm's way for now. Fuck. Will you let me know if you decide to open them up? She asked. I will. And I'll pray for you, she added. Wes smirked. Hey, you got enough food? West asked after an awkward pause. Yeah, I think so. Lots of deer meat, Joe replied with a look of mild fatigue. I'll bring you a couple of cans of other stuff. It, it might make a nice change, Joe nodded. Thanks, I'd like that. Cool. As long as, you know, you don't think Mr. Bum will see it as a challenge. Joe smiled, then thoughtfully, No, I can't call him that. He's too impressive for such an ignoble name. I agree, Wes concurred, lying through his teeth. How about calling him Satan, he thought, but didn't say aloud. The sound of two small stones being clacked together emanated from the trees, and Joe and West turned to look, but still the beast remained deep in cover. I wish we could talk a little longer, Joe said. Me too, Wes replied. 
but I'm sensing, you know, maybe we should cut it short for now. Yeah, we'll talk again. I'll bring you a couple of food cans. Where should I leave them? Wes asked. Oh, um, Joe pondered, looking up at the mountain toward her cave. I'm not sure. I don't want to put you in any danger. Uh, yeah, appreciate that. Wes smiled. Okay, you see where the trees end? She said, pointing high up on the mountain. Wes nodded. Up there. Okay, Wes said. Bit vague. Right after you leave the trees, there's a boulder field, and on the bottom edge of it is a white boulder. You can't miss it. It stands out. On top of that? Yeah. Okay, I'll bring them up tomorrow. Don't forget to remind him that I'm a friend, Wes urged. I think he knows. He's just being overprotective. He didn't mean to hit you with that rock. You know that, right? Joe assured. I think I do. Cool, Joe smiled. I'm really glad we've properly met now, Wes. Me too, Joe. Be careful up there. She smiled and turned away to head southeast toward the mountaintop. Not wanting her beast to see where his bunker was, Wes stood still to watch her go, and when she'd crossed thirty yards of marsh grass, he could hear movement off in the trees, a heavy thump, thump, thump of behemoth bipedal steps paralleling Joe, and amazingly still out of sight inside the tree line, he was fascinated by her. She seemed so unperturbed despite what was possibly the scariest entity on planet Earth walking at her side. Woe betide anything or anyone who thought she might be easy pickings. And just as Joe stepped into the tree line up the slope, she turned and held her hand up high. Wes waved back. Then she melted into the trees and was gone. All was now deathly silent. Was it reverence or fear that shut up every other living thing in the forest? Then all of a sudden Wes heard the signature croak of a raven and he looked up to see a large male soar overhead, glance down at him, make a slow arcing turn, then head back the way it had come. Why he felt like he'd just been spied on, he couldn't tell, but feeling creeped out, Wes headed back for the cover of his pine grove, and the raven croaked again three more times as it disappeared over the treetops to the south.